Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Over My Dead Pod. My name's Holly Spear. This is Kate Carter. And I'm Kylie Colwell. So today is my turn my episode today and Kate and Kylie we do a PowerPoint of some pictures to look at that have to do with the case before we start um we send it to each other and Kate and Kylie have gotten the PowerPoint and I named the PowerPoint the infamous name of the case so they all know what it is yep terrified for Holly yeah I this is one of my favorite cases and I forgot how elaborate and crazy it is so Kate and Kylie like tell me if like if you know any information that I didn't put in here like tell me because there's so much I'm bound to leave something out I'm really proud of you for taking on this case I just it's a lot and for those who don't know this case get ready because this is something else it's truly crazy I think my script is like almost 20 pages ridiculous I guess we will just jump right in since it will be a long one. So it's Wednesday, May 5th, 1993 in the peaceful town of West Memphis, Arkansas. The mother and father of Christopher Byers are beginning to get a pit in their stomach. Their eight-year-old son has not come home for the night. Christopher had gone to meet up with his friend Stevie. The two frequently met up together after school and met with other neighborhood boys to ride bikes and play around town. Christopher had set off on his bike after school, and he knew what time he had to be home. It was the same every day. Christopher arrived at his friend Stevie's house and knocked on his door. Stevie's mom, Pam, answered and told Christopher that Stevie had actually already been checked out of school early that day and that he was already out in the neighborhood riding his bike with his friend Michael Moore. Michael had just come to play at Stevie's house a few minutes ago. Michael and Stevie had just set out on their bike, so Christopher just missed them. Christopher rode off to go find his friends. So backtracking a little bit, Stevie had gotten home from school early and at about 3.35, his friend Christopher comes over, asks if he can play. Stevie's mother, Pam, tells her son, yes, you can go play with Christopher, but he had to be home by 4.30 or he would be grounded. This is because Pam, Stevie's mother, was in the middle of cooking dinner and she had to leave for work. She had to leave for work by 5 p.m. So Stevie had to be home before she left. I assume that Pam probably works nights. So she's making dinner for her kids and then she's got to go. All these boys lived within bike riding distance of each other, obviously. And actually, Christopher and Michael lived on the same street and Stevie was not far down the road. The three young boys were best friends and they had been in Cub Scouts together and they were in the same grade. This was 1993, so it's typical for kids to meet up, ride their bikes around town, play together. I was born in 96, so this was still kind of the norm in the in my small town of Arkansas. Neighborhood kids would just meet up, ride their bikes, play at each other's houses, just super normal. Today, the young boys had met up on their bikes, and they were going to go play at this place called Robin Hood Hills, which is not far from their houses. This is not really the most ideal place for kids to play, not because it was necessarily dangerous because of the people there but it was just like this big open wooded area that was kind of dense had some creeks or ditches running through it but I mean this was like the cool place for little kids to play you know it's just like a forest 
there's probably the chance for a lot of broken bones and falls, but it's not really dangerous, like in the sense that it's next to any like weird people or anything like that. 415, Stevie's father, Terry Hobbs, this is actually Stevie's stepfather, arrives home from work. 430 rolls around and Stevie's not home. So going back, this is the time that Stevie's supposed to be home where he's going to be grounded. 430 comes, Stevie's still not home. Pam can't wait anymore. She has to go to work. And at five o'clock, her husband, Terry, takes Pam to work and drops her off. Then Terry, the stepfather, starts looking for Stevie. He's 30 minutes late at this point. Here's the first little weirdness in the story. From five o'clock to nine o'clock, Terry Hobbs goes and hangs out with his friend named David Jacoby at David's house and claims that they were in the woods looking for the boys. The other boys' families have not noticed anything suspicious yet until about six o'clock when Christopher's parents start looking for him. I guess what's kind of weird is like Terry knows that his stepson is missing and he just kind of like shakes it off and goes and hangs out with his at his friend's house. But maybe he just thinks he's not abiding by the rules and coming home. We're not really sure. But from five to nine, he is with his friend, David Jacoby. A little bit. Red flag. Just a small Especially one. for how young the boys are. Yes. I don't think it's that weird, actually. Eight years old? I mean, to be like... That's a baby. I mean, this is early 90s. They didn't have like a cell phone or anything. Maybe they had a watch or something to be home on time. But you just think, okay, they'll show up later and I'll ground the kid when they get home yeah that's true that's, that's fair true. that's fair sorry but like you can't get away with that anymore so the other boys families haven't really noticed anything suspicious and it wasn't until six o'clock when christopher's parents started looking for him we have an id on the boys at about six thirty because christopher byers is seen by his parents the parents report that all three boys were riding their bikes in their neighborhood so we know that the boys did make it by christopher's house Then a neighbor that lives beside Christopher was leaving for church when she saw all three boys riding their bikes down the same road at 630, and she saw Terry Hobbs, Stevie's stepfather, yelling at the boys. So we know that the boys had found each other, and obviously at 630, Terry had located his stepson. This would be the last sighting of the boys. At 7 o'clock, Christopher's adopted father, John, reports Christopher missing to police. As far as I know, the parents haven't, like, spoken to each other. All they know is that their kids are missing. You know, they haven't, like, called each other's houses. From 5 to 9, Terry Hobbs, the stepfather of CV, goes and hangs out with a friend named David Jacoby at his house and claims that they were in the woods looking for the boys. Terry Hobbs claims he was out all night looking, but then this David Jacoby comes forward and contradicts this. David Jacoby would state that Terry Hobbs' attitude was off and that there didn't seem to be a lot of concern by Terry Hobbs about his missing stepson. David said that Hobbs just kind of hung around the rest of the night, played guitar, and he also stated that there were several times that Hobbs randomly left his house, and he said that this accounted for about two hours where Terry Hobbs would leave and then come back. At about 9.18, Terry picks Pam up from work. Pam asks where's Stevie, and Stevie's little sister Amanda looks at her and says, we cannot find him. So this is when Pam realizes that her son is still not home, and he's, this is 918, he was supposed to be home at 430. People kind of wave a red flag at this, that Terry didn't even mention to Pam that Stevie still hasn't returned home, and it's dark by this point. You'd think it'd be something that he would mention to Terry, but then again, it's Pam's son, 
Pam rightfully freaks out and she calls the police. This is about 9.30 when Stevie is formally reported missing. In between this time, John Mark Byers telephones West Memphis Police Department to report his stepson Christopher missing, as we know. Ten minutes later, an officer would show up to interview Byers. So the search begins and lasts into the late hours of the night and nothing is discovered. This was a huge search. Three eight-year-old little boys just disappeared. At about 1.45 p.m. the next day, an investigator goes to search Robin Hood Hills Trail. One of the places that within the trail that was searched was called Devil's Den, where there was this like creek ditch kind of situation running through it. Floating in the creek was a little tennis shoe. The investigator wades through the muddy water to grab the shoe, and then actually his foot became caught on a log, causing him to fall into the water. The investigator looked down and realized it was not a log, but the body of a little boy. So with the bodies, police found two bicycles that were underwater. Um, I think that one of the boys might have been riding a skateboard, but I'm not, I'm not entirely sure about that. Now, I will go ahead and say, if you've already not figured this out, this is kind of like a, this is a hard case. And I know we tell stories like this all the time, and I want to accurately tell it a lot about, like, kids and stuff like that. So the details are pretty pertinent to the story, but also pretty graphic. Anyways, the boys were found nude and had been bound by their own shoelaces. Their hands were bound to their feet. They had been beat. There was blunt force trauma, and there were also cuts. Christopher had been mutilated. So this is a pretty horrific scene. The coroner reported that there was lacerations to the head, face, and neck. And the coroner reported that the children likely died around 6 p.m. the night they went missing. So the autopsy was done by Frank Peretti. And you'll want to remember this name because it kind of comes up again. In the autopsy done by Peretti, it was concluded that Michael and Stevie had died from injuries and drowning. And Christopher had died from multiple injuries. Christopher had been cut with a knife, and the knife had been used to mutilate him. And I think he was the only one that was mutilated. This was a scene like the small town of West Memphis had never seen. The shocking nature of this crime against little children led to a swift and intense police investigation. West Memphis police were determined to solve the crime as quickly as possible because the community was scared. I would say that this was like even more amplified because it's in a small town, but also like the gruesome details of this case just were kind of unheard of. Three boys were basically like hogtied and beaten and then mutilated. They had to find who would do this as quickly as possible. This is where the investigation kind of went south. Police quickly honed in on a theory that the murders were part of a satanic ritual. So the satanic panic, if you've not been in the true crime space for long or maybe don't know much about the South, this was late 80s, early 90s era, and it was particularly Southern states. This is mainly because it was kind of a Bible belt and the fear that groups were worshiping Satan among them was kind of prevalent. Um, this is about the time that you also see goth people, heavy metal, rock was in style. So this new fad was quickly mislabeled by older conservative communities as devil worship. Hard rock was popular with kids. They were wearing black, going against authority. Really, communities didn't know what to think about this other than labeling it as like, oh, it's like of the devil, you know? So there was widespread fear about the existence of cults and satanic worship. And it was more about kind of causing this mass hysteria and rumors the idea of this crime being involved with satanic worship hit the news and it got a lot of attention and scared community 
So the media just kind of ran with it. It fueled the fire big time. And there was TV shows, talk shows, radios, tabloids, newspaper, kind of sensationalizing the stories of cults and violence. They were mainly just rumors, really. In actuality, there was not much of this going on. I mean, you might have had kids pretending to do this or being weird for this error, but they would listen to hard music and do this kind of stuff, but it wasn't really happening like the news was making it seem like. I don't know if it's accurate, but I remember watching, I think it was Criminal Minds, and they had an episode about like the satanic panic, and they were talking about how there's actually never been any sort of satanic cult murders in the United States. I feel like somebody like did it once and they just ran with it and it like scared everybody and that the whole thing with like heavy metal too you know like that was really more popular in the 80s or 90s if I'm not I'm not too sure about it don't quote me on it but especially in such a small town like one thing like that happens I mean it was very graphic looking anywhere pointing fingers you know yeah and I feel like it's easy something as horrible as this was it's easy to just pin it on that Yeah. yeah West Memphis isn't that small now, but back then it was pretty small. I feel like, mm-hmm. I don't know, they didn't have very many resources. They didn't have much education, I think, on forensics and detective mm-hmm. skills. I think yeah, it was a cop sure. out. I mean, and this was just such a graphic and horrible case that I think the mindset was, well, this had to be somebody demonic that did this. And I get where they can come up with that, but this whole air of this panic was just really fueled by kind of the error that these kid young kids were in and adults that really didn't understand what was going on. And it's it was like Kylie said, it's easy to just pin it on that. I mean, it's the easiest answer, you know, that somebody wouldn't in their community would do something like that. I don't think they they wanted to accept that. It took very little time for the rumor mill in this community to begin churning that this was the work of a cult and the media picked it up. Police ran with it too, even though there was really no physical evidence. The boys were found in the drainage ditch, so there was water in it at the time and any evidence that would have been present was pretty much washed away. Investigators began their search in a rather different way. They start off by going to a juvenile officer of the county, and his name was Jerry Driver. So basically, the investigators go to him and ask for any use that he's dealt with that he feels would be into this kind of activity. Jerry Driver is like, as a matter of fact, I do know someone who would be into this kind of stuff, and his name is Damien Eccles. Damien Eccles is 18 years old, and he is the epitome of what we just talked about of the hard rock, long hair, wearing black. He dropped out of school. He was an outcast. He dressed differently. He had tattoos, long hair, wore black, listened to heavy metal, all the things that we just said. And the older conservative people hated this. They hated the long hair, hated the music, hated the whole error and categorized it as demonic. And Damien Eccles embodied all of this. So he was not popular. And to be fair, he was kind of into, he was into weirder stuff at the time. But I mean, who's to say that that it's weird you know it's just like what he's into i like that they just like came out and named one person they were like oh this is who this reminds me of like yeah no evidence yeah Yeah. just the evidence doesn't lead us in any way so we're just gonna like basically take the word of people around town and be like who do you not like yeah who's the weirdo who's the one that thinks differently exactly 
so he was back going into the like weird stuff he had evil tattooed on his knuckles he was rumored to take part in these rituals we don't know i mean we don't know if this is just like rumors but anyway he was 18 years old basically a kid at this point he wasn't doing anything that should automatically make you a suspect in a murder case there's no evidence against him so his best friends were jesse miss kelly and jason baldwin and jesse miss kelly was 17 and jason was 16. The juvenile officer turned in all three names, Jesse, Damien, and Jason. These other two boys just basically get thrown in. They've done nothing wrong other than associating themselves with Damien. So police go to a neighbor of Jesse Miss Kelly and ask her to be an undercover informant. Her name is Vicky. So she goes and she gets Jesse to introduce her to Damien and kind of becomes, kind of befriends them. She gives police all this information that Damien and Jesse have taken her to this secret ceremony that he was a Satanist and basically reinforce this hearsay that police are using to build their case. Police call Damien in to be interviewed. They ask him where he was the night of the 5th, which was the night the boys went missing. And right off the bat, Damien says that he's 100% sure that night that he was with his mother. He remembers that he called some friends on the phone. And we know at this time that it likely would have been on his home phone. He maintains that he's never met the three boys who were murdered and he doesn't know anything about them. Police give Damien a polygraph and unfortunately Damien actually fails the polygraph. So whatever that means to you, whatever you think about polygraphs. What do we think about yeah. polygraphs, listeners? The Kate monologue about polygraphs. I'm not even going to go into it, you know, too many episodes so far, but say no to polygraphs. Exactly. So Damien's interviewed two more times by police and nothing led to an arrest yet. Then on May 19th, John Mark Byers is interviewed by police. Now John is the stepfather of Christopher. Police tell him that they need hair samples from him. Police tell him that they have something that they believe connects him to the murders. And John Byers submits and gives all kinds of hair samples. So we don't know at this point why the hair was taken, but we can only guess that police found something to test against the hair sample, obviously. Byers claims that he has an alibi for the time that the three boys were killed, and the people that he was with corroborate this alibi. But then on June 3rd, Jesse Miss Kelly is picked up by police. Talking a little bit about Jesse, Jesse's 17 years old. He's still in school, and enjoys school. Jesse has an intellectual disability and has an IQ of 72. According to the humanrightswatch.org, vast majority of people in the U.S. have IQs between 80 and 120, with the average being 100. To be considered to have an intellectual disability, you would fall between the range of 70 and 75. With that in mind, Jesse is escorted to the police station without a parent or guardian which is terrible. And I think this was actually at his parents had given permission for the police to question him. But I think that really people's mindset at this time and people who aren't educated in the law, which is the majority of people think, well, you know, he's got nothing to hide. So there's nothing wrong with him being questioned. So he's escorted without a parent or guardian and he's questioned basically for the entire day. This interview is released and you can watch you can watch most of it, not all of it, but you can watch most of it, and it's just freaking disgusting. And I say you can watch part of it because police actually neglect to record the whole interview, which is convenient. 
I'll summarize it just a little bit and give you a few details. They're basically sitting there manipulating this kid who has a disability without a parent or guardian with them. They're basically kind of saying to him, like, they're like, okay, so then what did you tie the boys up with? And he's like, oh, a rope. And they're like, well, what about this? And they're like suggesting feeding him things. I think at one point in the interview, he says that he was like, well, you know, when did all this take place? And Jesse says, I think it was around noon. And they're like, well, the boys would have been in school, you know, like maybe after school. And he's like, yeah, like three. And they're like, no, it would have been later. And he's like four. And then it ends up and he's eight. You know, it just, it keeps on. It's just, he's being fed information and he's sitting there kind of trying to please investigators, probably thinking that he's going to get to go home after he gives them what they want to hear. Just if you get the chance, go listen to the interview because it's easier to listen to than explain. It's interview manipulation, especially of a minor. Yeah. Some of our cases recently that we've done that were like in the UK, we they're not even allowed to like be named in court cases because they're minors. But here we can manipulate them, post all their videos. You know, at least you get to see the corruption, I guess. You know, it's not it's pretty bad. The interviews are pretty bad. Yeah, I think this the video of his interview reminds me sure most people have watched making a murderer on netflix the -hmm. interrogation of brendan dassey the nephew yeah Yeah. it's a lot like that yeah that's a good one that's a good comparison it really is it's very similar unsurprisingly police coax jesse into giving a confession confession states that damien and jason killed all three boys and he helped to hold the boys from running away he claims that damien beat up the boys real bad then tied them up, and then he ended up running. Jesse ended up running home. The story keeps changing. Jesse initially says that the boys were killed at noon. Not possible because the boys were in school at noon. So police lead him later and later, and it ends up around 4 to 5, and then it's around 8. So this fits the police's puzzle that they're trying to put together. And Jesse also says that the boys were tied. The police asked tied with what? Well, obviously, the first thing that's going to come to anyone's mind is rope. And so then they're like, no, not the rope. And then the shoelaces come in, just all these inconsistencies. It's quite literally all police need. And despite the confession, Jesse now claims it was impossible for him to have committed the murders because he was wrestling in another town on the night of the murders and recants his confession almost immediately after making it. It doesn't really matter. They immediately pick up the other two boys and charge them. The community believes that this crime fits who they know these three boys to be. The confession of Jesse is leaked to the public before the trial. And some people believe that the police leaked the confession because their case was so weak and they were seeking to justify these boys that they had just arrested. The judge presiding over the case decided that Jesse Miss Kelly should be tried separately because of his confession, and all three should be tried as adults and not juveniles. And remember that these boys, Damien is 18, and the other boys are 17 and 16. Like most criminal trials, the co-defendants are tried separately, except Jesse is tried by himself, and then Jason and Damien are tried together. The first trial is the trial of Jesse Miss Kelly. Here is some of the facts that we find out in Jesse's trial. We find out that the defense claims that Jesse's confession was coerced, obviously. We find out that Jesse was actually shown a picture of the bodies before he even confessed. So this kind of goes to how he would know how to articulate these things in a confession, you know? Like, he was shown 
prosecution argued that this was a tactic that's used a lot to keep people talking in an interview, but it also could be seen as just like showing him kind of like what to say. The defense tries to highlight all the inconsistencies in Jesse's story that police just kind of keep correcting him. In addition, there was zero physical evidence that Jesse or any any of the three murdered the boys. So we're writing everything on this weak confession of Jesse Miss Kelly. Prosecution obviously claims that Miss Kelly did have knowledge of his rights and made a coherent confession. On February 5th, 1994, the jury comes back and returns a verdict and rules Jesse Miss Kelly guilty. Jesse was charged with first-degree murder of Michael Moore, second-degree murder of Christopher Byers, and second-degree murder of Stevie Branch. Jesse gets life in prison plus 40 years. Then we have the trial of Damien and Jason. They're feeling very negative, to say the least, about their chances in court. Before police go to Jason and give him a chance to testify against Damien and spill what happened in exchange for a reduced sentence, and Jason refuses to take the deal. Damien and Jason get their day in court on February 28, 1994. Damien is portrayed as the main killer and the main ringleader of Jason and Jesse. So, as we already know the main ground for charging Damien and Jason was the satanic cult that they were in, quote unquote. The prosecution brings in a cult expert, whatever that is. The expert tells the jury that signals of someone being in a satanic cult that you can look for is black nail polish, tattoos, black clothing, and black hair. Oh, and it was a full moon of the night of the murder. So this was symbolic for you know, the ritual. You just described Kylie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Kylie. Or me like a few years ago. Yeah. Like what? Yeah. Black nail polish. I love that. <laughs> oh, this poor. Well, you know, this is, I, I'm sorry. This is just, there's no evidence, you know, like that's just a cult experts, like black nail polish, black clothing. You're done. Yep. Jail, automatic prison, automatic prison, straight to yeah. prison, straight to prison. Go to jail. So they also, this is this not even funny, but the weirdest thing is they talk about like the number three is symbolic somehow in this. Three boys were killed. Three people killed. the. I, I don't even know. I don't as it's honestly beyond me. I can't even think of like how they said this. But anyway, the number three symbolic to the ritual. Some like QAnon stuff. Yeah. The prosecutor talks about the kind of books that Damien liked to read. Some of these authors, including Stephen King. They brought in Damien's diary where he had talked about some weird stuff, said some kind of just stuff that, I mean, it was weird, but some stuff that is just kind of like, like he was just into weird stuff. You know, he was a rebellious, outcast teenager. He was probably goth, whatever that was at that time. And um, they brought his diary and it was really used to against him. Vicky, the confidential informant, the neighbor testified about the ritual that Damien took her to. So also let me point out that later Vicky recants this and says that she was afraid of the police so she complied and agreed to be an informant and she was basically bullied into saying this. Vicky said that everything that she said was a lie. This was obviously after her testimony. So two girls from the town testify and claim that they heard Damien had confessed to the killing and that Damien planned to kill two more little boys. So police also talk about that five months after they arrested Jason, they searched the lake behind his family's mobile home and and found a knife in the lake. 
They claimed that the serrations on the knife were, were consistent with the knife that was used to kill the three boys. They claimed that they believed that this was Damien's knife. And I don't know how, I don't know how they know that, that they think it's Damien's knife. It's in the lake behind Jason's mobile home, but that's what they say. It would later be discovered that Jason's mother threw the knife into the lake one year before the boys were killed. And so the knife is not connected, but it was used against Damien. So then the prosecution brought forward this boy named Carson, who testified that Damien had confessed to him that he murdered the boys and told him exactly how he did it. And he said that he drank the boy's blood, of course. Now, I'd like to point out that Carson later apologizes and says that he made it all up so we have just a few people coming forward that later say that they are completely lying gee thanks so much yeah wow really the only piece of credible credible evidence was that the police claimed that a fiber was found at the scene that matched a fiber in jason's shirt so this sounds nice that they matched a fiber, um, but it's really not that conclusive. There's fibers that can match each other that can come from different places. It's not like DNA where there's only one source of this fiber. Like the fiber of my sweater is the same fiber of the 500 other sweaters that were made. You know, I mean, it's not really that great of evidence, but. Here's some more things wrong. If that wasn't enough, the medical examiner Frank Peretti, which I told you guys to remember his name, he was likely wrong about the boys being sexually assaulted. He failed his licensing exam twice and then just decided to like not retake it. For some reason, he was still practicing without a license as a medical examiner. How is that allowed? I, I love him know. so much. Oh my God. Yeah. That just makes me so happy. I know. I, uh, I, I don't. I don't understand. Static. Yeah. Yep. So the injuries and how they were sustained were said to be wrong by almost every other examiner that looked at the case. The defense pointed out that the prosecution's theory that Jason, Jesse, and Damien killed the boys right there in the woods was flawed. The defense said that the mutilation to the boys was done with so much precision that it couldn't have been done in the woods. Even if they're saying that that the boys were killed by their stab wounds or whatever there would be blood like around the crime scene like they wouldn't have killed the boys in their bodies were found in the water but they wouldn't have killed they wouldn't have been stabbing them probably in the water you know like how do you kill three boys at one time like in the water and there was really not any blood found around the bank of this water so they bring that up they bring up the fact that the pathologist um was not licensed The defense provided a credible pathologist that claimed that what the original Peretti said was just completely wrong. And the defense claims that the the mutilation of the boys was likely postmortem. The craziest thing to me was that the pathologist states, quote unquote, that the mutilation of the boys was likely not at all caused by the knife, but could have likely been caused by animals. So this is the crazy one of the craziest parts to me because up until this point, the prosecution is basing their entire claim on the fact that this was some kind of ritual. And there's like a very strong possibility that it wasn't even caused by a human, that these were animal marks. Also weird to me is without the blood at the scene where the bodies are found, they were in that area, say they were taken from that area killed elsewhere and then brought back 
is also weird. Yes. But like personally, I mean, we're we're at a time and age too where like I don't give them that much leeway in the criminal system because like we've had so many other cases that you have to have proof, you have to have evidence, physical evidence, you know? And this was all based off of just someone pointing a finger and saying like, oh, you know, these dudes would like be into ritual shit and there's no evidence whatsoever. And it's based off false testimony. I mean, I could go on. This is a really frustrating case. So frustrating. And all the evidence and everything is just so convoluted. And the reason that it is, is because police are, instead of building a case, they're really just like like mate trying to fit whatever puzzle pieces they can fit around who they think did it. Like they're not building a case like, oh, this led us to this person. And then, you know, this person led us to this person. And it's not like that. It's like, oh, this is who it is and we're going to make it fit. Yeah. So yeah. it's just I mean, everything about this case is so confusing and annoying because it it's just annoying. So March 18th, the jury found that Damien and Jason were guilty of capital murder for Christopher, Stevie, and Michael. Jason is given life in prison and Damien Eccles got the death penalty. Obviously, all three defendants appeal their convictions and their appeal makes it all the way to the Arkansas Supreme Court, where the court upheld all three convictions. Damien sits there day after day waits on his execution date to be set their situation gained a lot of attention and there was multiple documentaries made about this all the documentaries gave all of the evidence but pointed to the obvious injustice celebrities musicians artists etc began starting began to start speaking out on the case then we start finding out some more information after kind of the media gets involved in this craziness it's revealed that a hair was found at the scene guess what? It doesn't match any of the West Memphis three. The three go back to the judge and ask for a retrial. And surprisingly, the judge says, no. So years go by and the case gains even more traction in the media. And finally, on November 4th, 2010, the three were given an appeal. They look at their appeal and the state claimed that they could not put on a case because the witnesses' memories would be too deteriorated to testify, a.k.a. everyone's recanted their story, and the evidence would be deteriorated. So, Can you believe that this is even happened like years, years after they've been sentenced with no evidence? They weren't allowed any appeals. They were all underage. New evidence was found. I can't wait to Google this judge when I get back. Instead of putting on this new case, which would just be crazy for them to do, the state goes to the defendants and asks them if they would be willing to take an Alfred plea. I'm sure we have all at least heard the term before. Um, This is sometimes called the best interest plea. And it's a famous plea that usually happens in cases where the defendant is usually innocent. The defendant is allowed to maintain their claim of innocence, but agrees that the prosecution has enough evidence to obtain a conviction. But not really. So they're kind of at the same time, like maintaining their innocence while in under the eyes of the law, they're they're pleading guilty, which is stupid. It's literally the stupidest thing. Uh, But the state loves it because it ends up keeping the person who's been wrongfully convicted from coming back and trying to sue the state. 
So the main reason why this plea would restrict a defendant from suing the state or other parties for wrongful convictions is the waiver is often part of the plea agreement and it's crucial for the prosecution. It provides finality to the case and prevents the defendant from later bringing a civil lawsuit or pursuing a post-conviction relief based on claims of innocence. When you enter this Alford plea and accept the terms, the defendant is essentially forfeiting their right to challenge the conviction in the future. So this is a trade-off that some defendants make when they believe it's in their best interest to avoid the risks and potential consequences of another trial. So they accept a plea deal to receive a shorter sentence or other benefits, even if they even if they maintain their innocence. It's a really sad thing for people to have to do. And in, but in most cases that I've seen of people who have accepted it, Alfred, is that they have there's literally no other choice. You know, like they're yes. either going to die or well, they're going to die in prison. You know, it's usually like lifelong consequences. Yeah. And I'm sure it happens in other times other than wrongful convictions, but you see it. It's famous for people taking it when they've been wrongfully convicted. And what sucks is you have to go before, you know, everybody, the public and say, enter a plea of guilty, which is just like such a slap in the face when you're basically being released. So I don't think that any of the three wanted to take this plea, but they did. Like Kate said, they really had to. The alternative would be that all three sat in jail and the way that the plea was structured, all three of them had to take it or their friends would be sitting in jail for the rest of their lives. It was all three or none. Wasn't it Kate's case, Michael Peterson, staircase killer, he had the Alfred plea, but are we like in unison that he probably did it he i i hate to say that like in his case it worked well for him because at his age he was gonna die in prison with his sentence but if he took the alfred plea like who cares he was a well-known man he had money well he had because he abused it all on the court cases um but taking the plea for him wasn't a big deal like he didn't have much of a life left to live as much as that sound like but the boys they're never like that's on your record forever it doesn't matter you know yeah. so but you're right yeah michael peterson was one of them that in the in this case the alfred did work in his benefit but um but then again he was guilty so personal opinion just throwing it out there. I actually, we had a listener who thought an opposite opinion on that case. So that was really interesting to hear. We love to hear opposite opinions. Mm-hmm. It's great. I'm always no, interested, but yeah. For real, pointing, I like to hear. it out. Yeah, yeah. No, I love to hear what other people think about stuff because I feel like it's productive to the case. So all three took the plea August 2011, 18 years later. So over half their lives, they've sat in prison half the time they've been over half the time they've been alive they've been sitting in prison and damien's been on death row on this day they walk free i don't know i mean just how this impacts a young person i mean the youngest one was 16 to sit over half your life in prison for something that you didn't do is just i mean they'll never be the same but anyways getting to walk free is great for the West Memphis Three. However, it's easy to forget that someone, maybe multiple someones, is walking free that has killed three young boys. They've been walking free for 18 years while someone else sat in prison for their crime. Let's talk about who other suspects, other than the suspects who quite literally couldn't have done it. 
just backtracking a little bit, the night that the boys went missing before they had even been reported missing, a call came in from a restaurant called Mr. Bojangles. Not Bojangles, Bojangles. or is it just Bojangles? It's dear God. Kylie, she just called it Mr. Bojangles. Now, now, Holly, I will say Mr. Bojangles is the suspect's name in this case, but the actual restaurant is just Bojangles. Just Bojangles? Okay. Yes. And Okay, because they kept calling this guy the Mr. There. Bojangles suspect, and I was like, who's, what is that? Well, because he, I don't want to get too into it, but he worked okay. at Bojangles. Okay, wait. No, wait, wait, wait. Holly, have you ever been to a Bojangles? I've seen it, but girl, I never. Oh, okay, girl, if you ever see one again, pull over right now. Oh. Get yourself some chicken supremes and some sweet tea. Oh, I'm- hey, I'm K- vegan. The what? Cajun okay. filet biscuit. You're a vegan cheater, Holly. In your Velveeta cheese. No, I mean you are vegan. Okay, but you—they have good macaroni and cheese too. Biscuits. Okay, the sweet the tea, the sweet tea is oh, really good at Bojangles. Hey, I might, I might, I might break veganism for Bojangles. So oh, you would, I mean, you would. Anytime Cam and I leave the state of Florida, the first thing we do is stop at as Bojangles. The second thing we do is stop at a cookout. It's Same. like you cookout. absolutely oh, have we've to talked do- about this. I don't know what a cookout is. We don't even need to go over. We can't go over yeah. two of my favorite food, fast food. But anyways, I'm pretty sure. Oh no, it wasn't he. The suspect you're about to go into. Didn't work at Bojangles, but it had he was located at a Bojangles. Yes. And so that's why they call him Mr. Bojangles. Hey, okay. Well, that's good to know that the restaurant I'm I'm glad that y'all told me that was not Mr. I'm gonna sh- I'm gonna ship you some. I don't know how to do it, but I'm gonna figure it out. I don't have any down here actually. So No, we could have like a whole two hour podcast about Bojangles and cooking. Just Bojangles. Yep. That's great. It's that good. And I've never been to either of those, cookout or Bojangles, so I'm really missing out. You I were even this, in North Carolina why do I this even time call last myself year. A southern person, it's disgusting. Like who are? What's your favorite mm. restaurant? Like fast food in Arkansas? Mm, I like I like Raising Cane's chicken. It's really okay. Good. It's that's very. It's a similar situation. Bojangles trumps by like ten times. Okay. I don't know. Bojangles and cookout are very North Carolina. Very. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, we love that you. That makes a little but, bit more sense. But I, yeah. I should have stopped there when I wasn't vegan. And I don't know what I was thinking. Next time. If you ever quit, let me know. I'm sure I will. Um, So. We are too. <laughs> yes. So as you can probably tell, this is a chicken restaurant in the South. And it's fast food chicken. And I have not been there. So the manager of Bojangles calls 911 and reports that a black male has entered the restaurant and has blood all over his shirts and ar- shirt and arms. As far as they could tell, it didn't seem to be his blood. They didn't seem to be they didn't report seeing any injuries on the man, but that only that he had blood on him and he was disoriented. He went into the women's restroom and allegedly cleaned up in there and left blood all over the bathroom. So police are called and apparently they take forever to arrive. And by the time that they arrive, the man is already gone. So police come back the next day to take samples of the blood in the bathroom. And it's mostly been cleaned up and contaminated for the most part. Police do take some samples and that's a complete waste of time because they are lost before they're even tested. So that's really cute. Kate might know about this, but. We kind of have some beef with the West Memphis Police Department because they are known for losing evidence. Big beef. Not just a little. 
I'm not talking. Well, yeah, you go ahead. You go ahead. Kate and I worked for a federal court and we would have to obtain some police records pretty commonly from the West Memphis Police Department. And they claim anytime you request anything, it's either lost or it was destroyed in a fire or it lost in a flood, any natural disaster. They would claim a hurricane if they could. I'm pretty sure of it. I'm not even kidding you. We used to request from jurisdictions all over the United States and the West Memphis, which is two two and a half hours away from where we were, was the worst jurisdiction to try to get documents from. Like, I'm not even kidding you when Kylie says they would respond saying a fire happened in 20, I don't know, 2001 and all records were lost. You know, it happened so many times. Like, it was impossible. How does that even happen this day and age? Like, how? I mean, I know that this was- I know that this was a while back, but I mean, like, to your point, how does that even happen? Like, do they not I know what the I'm not is? sure. Do we not have a flash drive? Like, what? I'm not no. sure I ever got documents from them. No, I, I'm pretty sure they were lying because at some point after Kate left, our boss physically drove to West Memphis and picked up everything and they had it. Yeah. What's wrong with these people? It's just like they, they and dear God, if you're any anybody in the criminal system that's listening from west memphis and it's so much better today i'm sorry but this was such a horrible jurisdiction to work with they didn't want to do anything like nothing emails not responded phone calls not responded we need documents ain't giving it to you and we worked for federal court so like it's not like we're just sitting there like twiddling our thumbs you know it's yeah it was pretty bad so they have a, a reputation i would say for uh losing documents well, it tracks because they lost this evidence and didn't test it. So, I mean, I don't really even know why that they would hear that there was a disoriented man covered in blood in the bathroom of a restaurant and not get there as fast as you could, but they didn't. And then they didn't connect it to the three boys missing that night. So, I don't know. I don't know what the hell. So, we know nothing about this. It's frustrating. It's completely possible that this man had something to do with the murders, but we don't know anything about it. So... That's fun. There was also a report of a white van stalking children in the neighborhood, and that's really all we know about that. So whatever. A little bit more credible as we go is Mark Byers. So here's the story of Mark. So he is the stepfather of the victim, Christopher, and there was a documentary. There was many documentaries made, but there was one made about the West Memphis Three, and the filmmakers of this documentary interviewed Byers Branch and the Hobbs family. I think they ended up getting pretty close to the family while filming the documentary. And after the documentary, Mark John, John Mark Byers, I don't know, whatever, gave the filmmakers a gift. And the gift was a knife. Weird, like you would do that when, you know, the boys were killed with a knife and then you give the filmmakers a knife as a gift. It's you remember the story I did the other day where the guy kept giving the family gifts yes. after he slaughtered their daughter? Yeah. Okay. What's up? People are weird, man. I don't know. I, I found that weird, but then what we always have stuff to compare it to. What? Like, people are so bizarre. The filmmakers notice that the knife is serrated, serrated just like the examiner, the first examiner claimed the boys' bodies had been. The filmmakers noticed that the handle of the knife had blood on it. So the filmmakers turn the knife over to police and police test the blood on the knife and it turns out that the blood matches the blood type of Christopher Byers. 
Byers initially claimed the knife had never been used. However, after the blood was found, Byers states that he'd only use it, used it once to cut deer meat. When told that the blood matched both his and Christopher's blood type, Byers said he had no idea how the blood might have gotten on the knife. During interrogation, West Memphis police suggested to Byers that he might have left the knife out accidentally, and Byers agreed with this. So that was great. I'm glad they helped him out on that. Byers later stated that he may have cut his thumb. Further testing of the knife produced inconclusive results about the source, but it was the same type as Christopher. Mm-hmm. I mean, one, I'm still confused as to why he sent the filmmakers a knife. Mm-hmm. One, yeah. weird. Two, a used one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Even if mm-hmm. it was on deer meat. Mm-hmm. And like the filmmakers looked at the knife and there was blood on it. So like, it's not like, hey, I cleaned it. Brand new knife. Here you go. It was like, I just cut some deer meat. Here you go. It makes no sense. So weird. Yeah. It's weird. So how the blood got there, we don't know. I mean, this was Christopher's blood. So is this stepdad's knife. Anyways, I'm going to talk a little bit about the possible teeth and prints on the bodies. So following the conviction, these were compared. There was bite marks found on the boys, um, which I think was brought up in the court case, but I'm not sure. But anyways, um, it was post it was post conviction. Okay. Okay. Yeah, because I think it was like they were already already sentenced and everything when that came up. Okay, so. Yeah, we're thinking post-conviction, but the bite marks were compared to um, bite marks on Stevie. Or Okay, sorry, I'm getting confused. Following their convictions, Eccles, Miss Kelly, and Baldwin submitted imprints of their teeth, and these were compared to the alleged bite marks on Stevie Branch's forehead that had not been mentioned in the original autopsy or the trial. No matches were found. So going back to John Mar- Mark Byers, the stepdad, his teeth, had been removed in 1997 after the first trial before imprints could be made. John Mark stated that his reasons for removal are contradictory. He claimed that both the seizure medication he was taking caused kind of like a gum disease, and he planned the removal because of other kinds of dental problems which had troubled him for years. An expert uh, examined the autopsy photos and noticed and noted what he thought might have been imprints of a belt buckle on Byers' corpse. The elder Byers revealed to police that he had spanked his stepson shortly before the boy disappeared. We don't know if these are teeth marks or not, but we know that if they are teeth marks, they don't match the teeth of Eccles, Miss Kelly, and Baldwin, which we could probably have guessed. And then John Mark Byers had his teeth removed in '97. And unfortunately, Byers passed away in a car accident in 2020. So let's talk about the next possible suspect. His name is Terry Hobbs, and he is the stepfather of Stevie Branch. This was the stepfather that was brought in to give hair samples in the beginning. And he was brought in, and the police had said that they know that there was a connection. So the hair that was collected at the scene is tested against Terry Hobbs, and the results are confusing because the hair is not inconsistent with Terry Hobbs. So I guess they couldn't say that it was or was not his hair, but they know that it was not the hair of any of the West Memphis three. In fact, I found out from forensic files with hair, unless you have the root to get DNA, you can only say, oh, it's the same hair type or it's uh-huh. not the same hair type. 
Makes I was just sense. thinking that too. I was like, they have to have the root. Makes sense. Okay. I feel like I knew that at one point and totally forgot. But yeah, they couldn't say that it was. They couldn't say it was not. But I guess probably the hair was consistent with the type of hair that he had. And the hair was found tied into the knots that were used to bind one of the victims. So it's not just like a hair found on the boy's jacket or found on, you know, the bottom of a sock. Like this hair was tied into the knot that was used to bind the boys. So obviously this is, and it's connected, you know. In addition, if you remember from the beginning of the story, Terry Hobbs was the stepfather that when he found out that the boys were missing, he just went over to his friend Dave Jacoby's house and just like, played a little bit of guitar then we find out that another hair follicle was found or another hair was found by the bodies that closely matched david jacoby but we know for sure that the results still were not eccles baldwin or miss kelly we don't know how these hairs got there um i mean the hair from the inside of the lace was obviously a little bit more sinister than the hair that was found around the bodies um we know that terry hobbs was at david jacoby's house so i don't know if he like carried the hair there like on his person and it or or david jacoby was actually at the scene so we don't really know so a couple more weird things backtracking a little bit the neighbor if you remember saw terry hobbs yelling at the boys down the road he continued to act like the boys were missing when he knew that he had actually seen them so that's a little weird claims that they were missing before they were actually missing. And we know that he saw them because we we have a report from a neighbor saying that she saw Terry Hobbs yelling at the kids down the road. Then Terry Hobbs just goes over to David Jacoby's house, plays guitar, lollygags while he's claiming that these boys are missing. And he's actually just seen them alive. So we also remember that it's reported that Terry left David's house a few times and there was about two hours of unaccounted for time. After the murder, we found out that Terry has a lockbox, and inside of this lockbox is a pocket knife of Stevie's. This is a pocket knife that Stevie had gotten as a gift, and um, it was reported that Stevie carried this knife everywhere with him. But when his body was found, Stevie did not have this knife on him. It was locked up in Terry's lockbox. Why he would have this, I'm not really sure. Even further, Terry has been in trouble with the law before. He has a charge of aggravated assault for shooting his brother, for shooting his brother-in-law. He broke, and then on another occasion, he broke into his neighbor's home and he grabbed her inappropriately and then ran away. Next, there were allegations from Stevie and other children of Terry's that there was abuse, both physical and sexual, from the stepfather, Terry. There were also allegations of abuse from his wife and his former wife of abuse as well. So if that's not enough, Terry Hobbs went around telling members of his own family that he had killed the boys. The family members go to the police with these stories and police give the family members polygraphs, which they pass. So, I mean, you know, we can say we hate, I don't know, you know, it's both ways on the polygraph thing. So whatever. So that's about enough information for me to know that Terry Hobbs at least needs to be locked up on about a couple of those things. It seems like Terry has a temper and Terry could have been mad at one of the boys who he was in the care of. Not to point fingers, but. Agree. What do you think, Kate? 
and this sounds awful, but if you look at the dads that are being questioned in this case, and then you look at Terry, uh, he looks like an innocent little baby human, um, which obviously, you know, sometimes can go against it, but he has a background. He has people who say he has a background and have been abused by him. Um, he had the knife, the whole knife thing kind of threw me for a loop because I completely understand of like this young boy or this girl has this item on their person like 24 seven. And then when their body's found, they don't have that item and it's locked away in the stepdad's case or whatever. That's sketch. Mm-hmm. That's a um, trophy. That's a trophy. Yeah. And also the whole fact of like, he saw them on the bikes, the neighbor has proof or not proof, but like visual proof of this. I don't feel like the neighbor is just going to make something up like that, especially if that's the boys died, you know, like it's not. And it was one of the first reports that police took about the boys, you know, like there was no time to really make up any sort of story and how it benefits them. I don't know. So, yeah, I feel like it's pretty accurate. Wasn't he the one like acting a little strange at the friend's house? Yes. Yeah. And that's from the beginning. I was like suspicious because like for me, I don't really understand your eight year olds missing. But if he knew that the kids weren't really missing. Yeah. Because he killed them. Yeah. I mean, everything added up together. You know, he pretended that, you know, he's like, oh, they're missing. But yet he had seen them set. He says, oh, they're missing. When he doesn't show up at 430. Then he goes out and searches for them, finds them. He's seen yelling down the road at them. And then he still says they're missing, goes to his friend's house, like dilly-dallies, leaves a few times for about two hours altogether, and then picks up the mom from work, doesn't say anything about her kid being missing, that he never came home. And by this time, you know, it's 9 o'clock. It's he should have been home by now. It's dark. So, I mean, but yeah, he's got a good, he's like good for him for creating an alibi. Well, we see through it. Yeah. Here's the worst part of the case. It's closed. So the case is closed because they took this Alfred plea and they had to plead guilty, even though they were not. It's the worst part of the whole case is that Christopher, Stevie and Michael may never get justice. And this case may perpetually be an ongoing mystery and just debate among the town, the state, everyone. The families of Stevie, Christopher, and Michael deserve justice for their three little boys that were taken from them. But that is the case of the West Memphis Three. Snaps for Holly. Snaps. Snaps. I will say... Because we didn't want to do a 12-hour show on this case, Holly did a really good job in hitting all the main points. But if you're truly, like, you want to get into it, there's some really good documentaries out there. There's some, like, five, ten-part episodes on this case. um, Because there's a lot of information that you also didn't get in here just because it's, like, some things are very opinion-based. You know, Mm -hmm. since the guys did take the Alfred plea, a lot of people are like, oh, that was a cop out. I mean, there's a, I know, I know some people I've argued with that think the West Memphis three, like the, the teenage boys did it. Um, yeah. so I am interested and I'm sure the girls are too. Like if you listeners have opinions or know anything about the case that, you know, Holly didn't cover, 
please yeah, let us know. Yeah, definitely tell me. There's so many dynamics to this case and information was kind of released at weird times. So the flow of the investigation doesn't go as neatly into a story as some of the other ones. So if anybody like knows of anything that we didn't touch on, like I'd love to hear it. And yeah, like Kate said, there's really good documentaries. One of them is Paradise Lost. Um, oh, I was also going to tell you that um have you guys seen stranger things absolutely okay so do you remember eddie munson Mm -hmm. the like long hair curly hair like he was into love him dungeons and dungeons and dragons and then okay so the inspiration for his character was damien eccles which is crazy not until you yeah. said it, but as soon as you were like Stranger Things, I was like, I know exactly what she's about to say because that makes yes. a lot of sense. So I was like reading an article about it and I'll just kind of cite the article, but I'll read a little bit of it. His character sported tattoos, um, an Eddie Van Halen inspired do and the Hellfire Club shirt, if you remember their little Hellfire Club. So his taste in the macabre and band and eccentric passion for metal and Dungeons and Dragons blah 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 all the things um so just interesting that that was kind of modeled off of Damien Eccles and Damien and I think it's Jason maybe have kind of become pretty outspoken about the criminal justice system and Damien's written some books he's like very active kind of socialite now he's still he's still trying to appeal yeah like from the three that I know of like this year that's why I was asking you before you started this year some he specifically put in another appeal okay i can't remember what the reason was but it was like at the beginning of this year that like new evidence came out or he was trying to appeal some type of evidence or lack of yes it's so frustrating because the worst part about it is not that they have to say they're guilty when they know they're not but to have to say they're guilty knowing that these fam that it's a closed case now like they're not going to keep investigating it unless, you know, something happens, which I don't even, you know, I don't even know what that would be, but that's the most frustrating part and sad part for the families is just basically they're like, well, you're out of luck, you know? Cause didn't was Damien was the one that had the death sentence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He had, so listeners, this is an example of a bad Alfred play is death sentence, innocent person, or as we say, we think is innocent they he had to get he had to use the plate yeah yeah and I keep saying innocent this whole time and you know Kate's right like I mean you know we never know because we don't know this case is unsolved and closed so um I mean pretty much unsolved I guess you know it just depends on your opinion but yeah I mean everything in here that I've stated has kind of been biased towards my opinion a little bit but um if you have other opinions like let us know we're just out here you know doing our best crazy story i urge you all to look into it if you didn't know about it okay i just googled the appeal kate was talking about so yeah damien had found an appeal to have a new type of dna testing thing done on the ligatures collected on the boys and the attorney general filed to have the appeal dismissed and the arkansas supreme court denied that motion so this was in april i don't see anything new so okay. I'm assuming they are doing some DNA testing currently. That's good. That's good stuff. Because so it definitely, great. it needs to, this is a case that needs to go up the ladder. 
Um, mm-hmm. No offense, Holly, to the Arkansas government, but like if it was any state, it doesn't matter, any state, there's obviously been so much corruption in the case that comes to the government. It needs to go up the ladder. And this is such a famous case, too, that like you can't if you're in the criminal justice like world, you know this case. Yeah. So like biased opinions are going to be everywhere. So it needs to not be in the hands of local government anymore. Yeah. That's what's so um was so intimidating about doing this case is because I mean so many true crime people know about it. So I'm sure I missed some things. I'm sure you know there's things that You hit you know, all the points. On, but you hit all the points. Boy, it was a doozy. I do have a question. For the area they were in was it like a popular area? Like I know the boys frequent it, but like, is it possible they like ran into someone out there? Um, I mean, it seemed like to me reading the material that it was a popular place for kids to hang out, which makes it worse, you know. Yeah, that's not like I don't know if you guys heard about it in New York. The girl that like went missing on the trail with her family while they were camping like two weeks ago, and. Thank God they ended up finding her like 10 hours later, but she was abducted. I was going to do this as one of my overtime stories for you. And literally while we were recording, I got a notification that she had been found, but it was in such a popular park and area. They were like, anybody could have just grabbed her off her bike. Like it's so easy when you're that young to get distracted, you know, and Mm -hmm. it takes, it takes a minute. I horrible as a sound. It takes a minute to kill a kid, you know, like that's so you're not they're not fighting as hard as like an adult stuff yeah. like that but a popular mm-hmm. area makes it almost worse because it's more suspects yeah um and that brings up another point like how hard it would be to kill just one kid but these were three at one time so i think that that kind of played a lot into people thinking that it could be multiple killers I think that it's entirely possible that it was multiple people, but I also think that it's possible that it's somebody that the little kids would listen to and know, you know, if they were like, hey, come here or hey, do this. I think that an authority figure that they knew is also pretty likely to. Yeah, and it also doesn't have to be someone they personally knew, but like you're out playing in the woods with your friends as an eight-year-old and like a single adult. Any He's adult. telling you what to, to do. You're, yeah. you're going to listen to an adult. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, well, the, there's a good example of that with. Uh, oh. You're talking about Abby yeah. and, Eb- and. The railroad tracks. Yes. What is that? What Shoot. Are what are, why are we blanking? The new Delphi. Delphi. New Delphi. Delphi yeah. murders. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that. Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty good comparison. I mean, those were two little girls. They were a bit older, but yeah. They were like 11 or 12, right? So not too, but it just doesn't matter. An adult tells you what to do, especially if they're like a normal looking adult, you know? Mm-hmm. Not Mr. Bojangles. Not Mr. Bojangles. So we're going to jump into our overtime segment now. And my overtime segment was actually going to be that I wanted Kate to talk about her baby moon that she just went on. Yes, yes. I did. I did. Cameron and I just got back. Cameron, my husband, just got back from our baby moon. We went to Charleston. I am 
born and raised North Carolinian and have visited Charleston many a times in my life. But Cameron had never been before. So this was like a cool little adventure for him to be able to go see. And of course, if anyone who's been to Charleston loves Charleston. So it was gorgeous. We had moody weather, which made me so happy because living in South Florida, I don't get to see that too often. But we went for a little like half of a week. And something I wanted to point out, because even Kylie was asking about this before we started recording, but one of the activities, so like Cameron got to pick activities. I got to pick activities. Cameron's big thing is he wanted to go golfing. Of course, shocker. Um, my big activity is I wanted to do a ghost tour and Charleston's really famous for that. But something that some people just don't know about me that I love is that I'm really into touring the USS ships that are in the US. So I love naval ships. Don't know why they're all the same. But um, so they actually had a ghost tour on the USS Yorktown, which is in Charleston. So it was another boat to cross off my list. And I got to see a ghost tour. So it was really cool. We went at like 730 on a Wednesday night, Thursday night, something like that. And uh, it was great. It was just a little weird. You know how like sometimes you get a tour guide who's just like super into it but like not he was i don't want to like no he was he's he's not gonna listen to it but he was like very passionate yeah emotionally attached he was like holly i told kylie this before we started recording but like oh i thought you were about to say he was like holly i was like (laughs) no 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 Um, I'm emotionally attached too much. I was going to say, Holly, get ready for this. So we're like in the middle of the boat and there were like two, we, it was an hour and a half tour or two hour tour. And I would say like halfway through it, he was like showing us, uh, he was like, take videos everywhere. Cause you never know what like you'll see later on with like live pictures and stuff. So Cameron's like taking live videos, live pictures Mm -hmm. everywhere. And he showed us some from other tours that were like, kind of like, Ooh, yeah, that is weird. Um, but we didn't experience anything like firsthand, but in the middle of the tour, we're like down on one of the decks and the tour guide, um, can't remember his name, but he was like, so this is, I want to tell you guys a story about, we'll just call it sailor John about sailor John. And like, I just really want you guys to like understand this story and no no I hope that what I say to you you'll take with you and I mean the guy started tearing up what does he cry every tour exactly and I and it was legitimate too like he was literally like he started choking and he told us about like this one sailor who was 17 years old and got his legs blown off in an explosion and look Philly's like scared right now because I started crying um he was the 17 year old sailor got his legs blown off he ended up passing away but in the meantime he refused help from the medics because he knew other people needed it more and our tour guide's like so i really hope that like you take this story and this reminds you of all the brave people and cam and i literally i look at cameron because there was only eight of us in the tour so it was super small and i look at cameron and cameron's like completely turned around like looking off in the distance because he's trying not to laugh yeah it, that's what i do when i'm trying not to laugh and so yeah. literally cameron's like looking at you know plaques on the wall like acting interested in reading stuff 
and I'm staring straight at Cameron because I'm also like <laughs> normally I'm really good with people having emotions but like it was just a very he was just so it he was like passionate about it and he was like but it's you know he's not one of the ghosts here but like you know I just want you to have that story and we're like all right moving on he uh, wasn't even one of the ghosts no it wasn't one of the ghosts it was just like a <laughs> random st- I was like you could have just made that up like I but he got teary and so I was that was interesting um but I will say overall and the last ghost he told us about was about a dog ghost on the boat but the dog didn't die on the boat so cam and i didn't we couldn't put two and two together of why the dog would be on the boat but i'm so much more likely to cry at that story right and well the whole time like we were walking around and they're god what i'm gonna scrappy was his name or something like that yeah scrappy was his name the whole time cam and i are like scrappy scrappy come on come on show us something scrappy like we were so much more interested in the dog ghost but yeah. I will say overall, a a ghost tour on a USS ship at night and it was like lightly drizzling was really cool. That's it great. Really creepy and cool. Like it was creepy just to like be, you know, like we were the only people on the ship. Mm-hmm. So like anything that made a noise, we were all like, what is that? But we didn't experience anything. We didn't, we went back to the hotel and we didn't see anything on Cameron Cameron's phone that he took pictures of. But it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Um, but that was definitely one of the highlights of our baby moon. So I enjoyed that. And then we played golf for Cameron like 500 times. No, your we- entire Instagram story was uh, golf, golf courses and then also top golf. We went because it was raining and Cam was, we were like, what are we going to do? It's raining. And of course I'm like, Cam, let's, there's, they have a great aquarium. There's so many museums. And Cam's like, well, I pulled up a Top Golf. It's down the street. I was like, are you kidding me? So we went to Top Golf. Yeah, we did lots of golfing, but it was good. Got a week off of work. Can't complain. Um, So yeah, it was nice. And I am now 33 weeks pregnant. So the baby is viable to Oof. come anytime at this at this point. So now we're really like honing in. No more trips. No more trips. And we have your baby shower this weekend. We do. This Saturday is my baby shower. Very excited. Um, mm. I'm gonna receive a ton of diapers. So here's a here's a fun fact and future note for anyone that gets pregnant and has a baby shower. There's a great idea where you do a a diaper raffle and people bring diapers and however many diapers they bring, they get a ticket for. So like you bring 10 diapers, you bring, you get 10 tickets at the end. There's a raffle. You pull out numbers, you get a gift. So Cam and I are going to give a first place and a second place gift, not telling you what it is, but um, it's a good idea to stock up the new parents with diapers. So very smart. I saw a little TikTok little hack not to open the diaper boxes until you need them because you can return them. Oh, returning. I was going to say you can donate. Or yeah. Yeah. I actually, I did. I did hear that you can swap out sizes. So like if it's unopened, you can swap it out. Cause a lot of people like even this weekend, I know a lot of people, Kylie, if you haven't bought them yet, this is some advice. Don't give any newborn diapers um, they grow so quickly that people like stock up on newborn diapers and it's like four days worth of like, yeah. that's, that's it. You know, they need like the three months and stuff, um, or just later on, but yeah, it's going to be good. There's going to be a little baby girl joining our 
over my dead pod group soon and she'll be a little murderino just like us baby pod baby pod that's so cute love it yeah thanks bodie doe